Forgers and fakers always in the end get discovered Like a young Kobe in the Lakers My shit is sizzling and bubbling Who said it's cold? That's mistaken Never forgiven my mother for this misnomer she gave me Remember Chet was a trumpeter more than he was a baker A name could be deceiving, right? Connecting left and right cause I'm a fucking Frida type If life is like a box of chocolates, I need a bite So let me end by saying I got what I need in life I can't see a peak in sight Keeping my chinos nice And trying to find a name that I haven't defeated twice The track you just heard is an excerpt from my brand new album, Amor Fatih. You may remember the music videos I put out last year, Blasphemy, Straight A's, and Forward. This new album features all three of those singles, plus seven brand new songs. Now, I put my all into this project, and it's a real representation of my passion for music. So if you want to listen to the whole thing, click in the description or search Cold X-Man on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to music. Now back to the podcast. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guests today are Sarah Hader and Megan Daum, who co-host the podcast called A Special Place in Hell. Sarah, Megan, and I talk about the difficulty of dating in New York City when you have heterodox politics. I talk about how the death of my mother influenced my attitude towards science and alternative medicine. We talk about social contagion and gender dysphoria. We talk about Sarah Hader's origin story as an ex-Muslim. We talk about Megan's origin story as a hater of phoniness. We talk about Robin Hansen's great book, The Elephant in the Brain, and the evolutionary logic of virtue signaling. We talk about split brain patients. We talk about the bad incentives facing public intellectuals. We talk about lab leak and much more. I really recommend you all check out their podcast called A Special Place in Hell. If you like what I'm doing here, then you're probably going to like what they're doing over there. So without further ado, Sarah Hader and Megan Daum. All right. How are you guys doing? Well, how are you doing? Oh. I'm great. Whose show is this? Who's interviewing who? So you thought it was your show. I thought it was my show. Let's just make it both of our shows. Well, you're the one in the beanie. That's so true. So you must be the host. I'm dressed in my podcasting uniform as a male. Did it's you only mandatory. start wearing a beanie when you started podcasting? Well, it's actually, you, you have to. It's part of the regulation in New York to get your podcasting license as a man. They give you, they hand you your beanie Wait, you have at, a license? at the DMV, yeah. Women aren't, we don't qualify for licenses yet. Not it's yet. Women Not podcasters. The world. Well, look, uh, did you see this article recently in the New York Times about why you should not date a podcast, bro? Yes. I heard about it. Yeah. Yeah. There was a whole article about why saying you have a podcast is like the biggest turnoff for women in the dating market right now. And you should basically just stay away from podcasting guys. It was, I thought I felt that was, very attacked. I felt very erased by that article. Yes. I saw that you tweeted that. I did. It was by a woman who was talking about how she dated a guy, but she forgave him for being a podcast or he didn't reveal that he had a podcast yeah. until they had been dating for a while. She catfished him as a podcaster. She did? Or he catfished her rather. <laughs> By saying he wasn't a podcast bro and then turned out to be a podcast bro and guys don't include it in their bio and I'm all so this stuff. I'm wrong about it. Like what? Well, I, I mean, the idea is like if you have a podcast as a guy, then you're Andrew Tate. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're a misogynist and you're horrible and you can't find the clitoris and all this well, stuff. Well, I mean, if you spend too much time podcasting, you can't find any human 
body part. I don't understand these kinds of like articles that are just one woman's dating experience, you know, like As she had a bad date and now it's an article. Yeah. And now it's an article about, about the whole world. <laughs> and it's true about all of society because on the other hand, I felt like in a way, maybe this makes it kind of dangerous and sexy to be a podcaster. It might actually backfire. Like if you tell women, oh, you should you, you shouldn't date this one type of guy. They're too dangerous. I feel like in a way that raises my yeah. capital. So what about like Michael Barbero and Ezra Klein? Like they're podcasters, right? And they so maybe this is like. But they're podcasters that them. Hard, like kind of hard signal their feminism in, in some ways, which so so they wouldn't really be included in this, nor would I. I mean, I'm not like a shock jock podcaster type. But, but you already but you have like um, heterodox opinions like yeah. us. So actually, like one of the things I think like I was really curious about and wanted to talk to you about is, you know, what's what's it been like for you as a young guy in a very liberal, <laughs> like liberal city who is kind of a star in this heterodox space and do people like do yeah how, what's it like to be like is it know, hard dating for, is it hard world? for him to get dates like, do, is that yeah, what you're that asking kind, yeah. kind of yeah so i have a girlfriend but i was single for quite a while during this period of my life and i would so like in new york city it's not necessarily an a- advantage to be a writer and podcaster with the opinions that I have, because basically what would happen is this. I would go on a date, right? I would match with somebody on Tinder or Hinge, go on a first date and just be basically waiting for the shoe to drop in terms of I Googled you. I saw you testify before Congress. I read your article for Quillette. I read your article for New York Times or whatever. I disagree with it. Why do you think racism doesn't exist? Which I've never said. I had I had one uh, back when I was in college, this probably would have been closer to the time I I met you like four or five years ago. I matched with a girl uh, at at Columbia who went to Columbia as well. And she liked uh, a jazz group that I play in. She was like a huge fan of the Mingus Big Band, which is this uh, jazz group I've been playing in uh, downtown in New York since I was 16. So I was like, oh, wow, this is like amazing. Like she's already a fan of something. And it just came up naturally. And I happened to be. So I was like, oh, like this is going to be great. I'm in. Easy money. So we were continuing to talk. And Eventually, she says, oh, what else do you do? I say, oh, I'm a writer. She reads my article, says, sorry, I cannot go on a date with you because I can't be with someone. I, I can't go on a date with someone who thinks racism isn't real. So so it's a, it's a so double you, it's a double edged like it's a double edged thing. it then like right in the beginning just like as you match with somebody you're like hey it's kind this of is, it's Google kind of an first, ethical thing then, like it's like having an STD like should you disclose it. Heterodox is kind of because like your opinions an STD. do spread through sex. That yes, just like STDs. A, That's yeah. true. <laughs> through exposure definitely. Yeah. You could sure. probably yeah. be sued if you give your heterodoxy to somebody else without That's disclosing right. it first. Yeah. If you make someone a Republican, that's like a... All those people that I've turned on to the fifth column over the years, they could still come back and sue me. They could do a class action suit. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So wait, this girl, so you hadn't even gone on a date. We hadn't even gone on a date, but she was super excited initially to go on a date with me because I was like, like in this band that she loved, right? She said, I asked her like, oh, what is your favorite jazz group? And it happened to be the one that I was in, wow. right? And not even that was enough to counteract the political ideology difference. On the other hand, being a, as a young man, having a career that is far more advanced than most young men my age is definitely appealing to women and like having my quote unquote shit together 
to the degree that I do, whatever degree that is. That's definitely, that was definitely a plus when I was single. So it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Do you, okay, how am I going to ask this? But do you feel like uh, female podcasters are uh, are really hot? Like, would they be a big commodity or or no? It's kind of, is it like kind of, it's kind of like a turn off? To me or to? I don't know, just anybody generally. I, I don't think so. Do you, it, yeah. It depends your persona when you're podcasting, like you could have a very attractive persona when podcasting. Well, not as a, no, as a woman. Not really. I think you could. You <laughs> I don't think, think it's, so? like, it's like being a conservative woman, you know, like it doesn't really, it doesn't harm you that much. It doesn't harm you the way. Right. You think men would like it. I have a friend, my friend, a very good friend of mine dates a, a female podcaster and she has a, she has a big podcast and, um, I don't, I've never gotten the sense that that's like a demerit. Right. So, but hetero, I feel like heterodox women would have an advantage because the men would be relieved that they weren't going to be me too'd by her or something like that. This is probably true. I mean, I think it, it it's definitely a, a real, well, first of all, there's a huge gender component to political ideology, which I, my understanding is that it used to go in the opposite direction. Like women at one point were on average more conservative than men many, many decades ago. And at least for younger Americans, that profile has flipped, uh, which is interesting if true. But I do think it's if I understand that somebody is, if somebody says something on a first date that indicates to me that they're not like a censorious woke person that I definitely breathe easier, you know? Um, and you know, like I, I remember another date I went on when I was in college and we tried to go to some restaurant, ended up going to Chipotle, which is whatever, not my best. Look, it's college. It's, I'm amazed you would go to any restaurant and as an undergraduate, you were like going to take girls out to restaurants. Wow. And uh, like five minutes into it, we're talking about, oh, what what are you into? What am I? Blah, blah, blah. And she says, I'm um, I'm writing a thesis on the intersection of racism and capitalism. Yeah. That's and amazing. I was yeah, like, get out of there oh, God, am You're I going to be me too by being in that room with her? Yeah, like, it's too late. That, almost. That's like a mad lib. Yeah. Like yeah, I yeah, am exactly. writing a thesis on the intersection between blank and blank intersection. Like that word. It's one of those words like marginalized intersection. Right. Like you you see it anywhere. And you know, that like they, they've absorbed the language, so they've probably absorbed the ideology and yeah. you just need to get out of there. I think it's like, I only dated for like, like I was only in the dating space for maybe like two months before I got into another <laughs> long term relationship and yeah. that's it. And yeah, I'm what? The dating space? What? That's the hilarious. It's like the dating the scene. Dating the how, pool, that is so the of our moment that, you would call it, okay. that it would be called the dating space. The dating universe. Scene. The dating scene. scene. Okay. That's All what right, we said in my day. Um, I, so I, and then I, I signed up for, um, an, a, a website, like before there were apps where when there were just like online, like dating websites. And I put in atheist. And I remember at first I didn't, I didn't add that in there. I just put like not religious or something. And then I changed it to atheist. And I remember my inbox was suddenly flooded with like yeah. all these guys. And then I realized, oh, there's like no women that are willing to put that on their profile. And there's like a whole horde of men that are like, oh my God, like yeah. so amazing. Wonderful. I have to marry wow. her instantly. Yeah. 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 It was crazy. So I think that'd no, be I similar to being big... a heterodox woman. I think yeah, so. You know, like, cause left-wing men aren't afraid of you and right-wing men aren't afraid of you. You right. know what I mean? Like, right. Right. 
if somebody puts their their pronouns in their profile, do you overlook that? Because I think sometimes men feel that they have to, or they're so clueless. Like if they're not aware of the stuff at all, if the app asks for the pronouns, they're just going to be like, oh yeah, he, him, whatever. They don't Depends know. what a man is looking for. If you're just looking for casual hookups, I think most men are pretty happy to, for you to like believe whatever. It doesn't matter. Like I, I have a friend, this is one of my favorite stories, uh, one, one of my best friends from college. He is a conservative and he used to have a a picture of Reagan in his dorm room, right? But when he would bring a a girl over, which was often in those days, he would, he would, he would turn it over. And And it would be a picture of Bernie Sanders. Exactly. And and he'd like get laid instantly. Yeah. But then if he liked a girl and it was like couple, they went on a couple dates, eventually he would choose the moment to like put it, like put reveal it back, himself to reveal her. himself and see whether he was accepted or not. And that was the crucial moment. But in those first few instances, I think most guys who aren't looking for something serious are just happy to say like, oh, look, uh, you got pronouns in your brow. Maybe I'll make a little innocent joke about it because like I'm not trying to have a Socratic dialogue with you. So like, for example, that <laughs> the, the girl that said she was into like the intersection of race, racism and capitalism, I remember I just had this moment where it was like, am I going to, am I going to tell her about all my critiques of the concept that racism and capitalism are linked from my hundreds of pages of reading and like furious 30 page self Google docs on this specific issue? Or am I just going to keep the peace and not, you know, not text her again? And I, I think I chose the second one because I was like, uh, now are these like white girls? Who, this was a black girl. This, this one was a black girl. To be a black okay. girl yeah. But do you the, have the like the other woke, one was a white girl that canceled on me? Do you think that you were tending to get like some woke white girls who wanted to date you because you were a black guy? And a little then, bit, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I that thought has been in the back of my head at times. I try not to, you know, like prejudge anyone, but I definitely do think that that's like a phenomenon. Because it would be a great like, feather in their cap. Of yeah, course, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And then lo and behold, you meet Coleman Hilarious. Hughes. You're waiting to get you're, like this like woke black dude petard. to piss your daddy it's, off. It's so and then great. it's And then it's Coleman Hughes. And like, then daddies would love you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I probably, yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm glad I don't have to deal with that. Oh my gosh. That sounds horrible. Yeah. Well, also just as a woman, I don't think men care that much. Like, regardless of if, so long as you accept their politics, like you tell me about how you feel about these. If that girl, the cap intersectionality of whatever racism, capitalism woman, um, if she said, you know what, this is what I think. It's cool what you think. Yeah. You know, I, I, no, I wouldn't care. You wouldn't I wouldn't mind, care. Right? It might even be nice to have that kind of like a like a, a, a deep bond and but have a difference of opinion. Do you think you can handle that, though? Like if the person, could you be long-term with somebody who wasn't at least on really the same page? It would really depend how they- How same, yeah. In what um, style they held their opinions right, right. and in what style they engaged. Yeah. I Because I interviewed John McWhorter on my podcast a couple of years ago and he was sort of recently divorced and I and he was like dating and I asked him like, could you- be in a relationship with somebody who wasn't like really into this stuff or like, you know, very much opposed to you. And, and uh, I think he said, I, it's like, I don't want to be, I don't want to feel like I have to censor myself. Like I don't want to be walking on eggshells and I, and if I'm going to be like, you know, cooking dinner and having a glass of wine, I want to be able to like talk about my day and all the people who came after me but that's or like whatever. that's a feature of modern society. I, th- I think people used to have disagreements in their relationship, but there was no sense that you had to censor yourself. Right. I mean, I know my parents growing up were very diametrically opposed 
on politics. My dad was more of like an Ayn Rand libertarian. And my mom was literally a communist. My mom was a Marxist. She was reading Marx and Durkheim to me when I was five years old, like indoctrinating right, me. That's child like abuse. Fox News' worst nightmare. It was great though. You know, she she was reading Durkheim and Marx to you when you were five? What, Absolutely. Like, like, was it like so, socialist baby? Like was yeah, it, no, like, it was literally like was communist baby. Book? It was like communist baby. Did it rhyme? I mean, like, were there pictures? No, were she was there? reading me like out of Das Kapital. I didn't know. Okay, this explains I still don't everything. understand Das Kapital. This explains. Okay. Are you, did you, do you have siblings? Yeah, I have, I have two sisters. Yeah. And are they like this? Or are you just a freak in there? So like, are, are they into this stuff too? Are they like, are they heterodox? No, no. I mean, uh, one is, one is sort of democratic socialist, I would say, like AOC broadly. Um, and the other is kind of, difficult to pin down. Are you the oldest? No, I'm the youngest. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So one of the things, so Sarah and I were talking about this. So one of the things we wanted to ask you is sort of like, what is your heterodox origin story? Because I feel like everybody has something that kind of led them to uh, thinking in a more counterintuitive way or anything like that. And you actually, I want to let you take this, but I did, I, I heard an interview with you where you were talking about something and I was like, that's what it is. And so you can answer and then I'll tell you what I think it is. Tell you if it's, if it's the same thing I said that it's funny. I, I wonder if my story will be different because Sometimes on different days, you you write a different well, narrative. Well, you didn't say it life. was why you didn't say it was your origin story, oh, okay, but you okay. said something about your life, and I thought that's why he is the way he is. So I think I would say two factors seem significant to me. Significant one is I grew up in a, in a very racially diverse town where I had friends of every race, and I did not think of them as belonging to a race, uh, and I naturally rebelled against the significance, I think, given to race later in life as a result of growing up in that way. And secondly, I think as a a teenager, my main passion was music and jazz in particular, which is extremely racially diverse and we're kind of like the army or something, you end up becoming extremely close friends with people of very different races and even other parts of the world. And that background being like my whole life, then being thrust into like a post-2014 Great Awakening era hotbed of wokeism at Columbia and all these people telling me like, I'm a victim, racism is everywhere. I be- it, like it was a sudden, um, it, it, was a, it was a level of concern about racism that was greater than what I experienced from my black family that grew up in Jim Crow. Like they, p- kids would be talking more pessimistically about society than my grandparents. And something seemed just like that, like broke me. I just had to understand what is going on here because this is, it was just an insane phenomenon. Um, so... And you were an undergraduate around this time, yes, 2014? Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's, that answers part of the question. But okay, I had... what, what? Okay, well, this is curious. Okay, I don't want to I was like... also bitten by a spider when I was 16. <laughs> really? No, that's my a origin vampire. story. Yeah. I was bitten by a vampire <laughs> myself. No, I heard you talk and I can't remember where this was. So I, you, your mom passed away, right? You lost your mom to cancer when you were a teenager. Okay, I heard you talking about how she was like relying on alternative medicine a lot. And I don't know what the situation was, but like, 
I was listening to you talk and I thought, and you sounded like a little bit like you were frustrated that she had maybe over relied on that or not gotten the sort of, you know, Western modern treatment that might have helped her. And I thought, I wonder if that is what is informing a lot of the like allergy to bullshit. I think that's right. I mean, that's an aspect I, I often don't think about because it's it's painful. But yes, my, my mom got very deeply into alternative medicine um, probably around 2010. Um, she, she got cancer and then it went into remission and then she started getting deeply into alternative medicine, especially Ayurvedic medicine, which is ancient Indian medicine. And, um, it was really like her main passion in life. And she got kind of deeper and deeper into it and more and more radicalized to the point where she changed her main doctor to this guy who still has a practice in New York, actually, Dr. Ali who has like very bizarre theories about he, you know, like like he believes like all, um, all chronic diseases have the same cause, which is like lack of oxygen metabolism in the cells. And it can be solved by like deep breathing, like anything from like lupus to cancer to diabetes, like all of these have one cause. And, um, so she got deeply into this guy and, and, and this guy did not do, did not believe in, scans in, in typical kinds of scans. And, um, and so she started, he, he didn't run any tests on her. Right. And, and as a result, her, her cancer came back, you know, long before she detected it. And at that point it spread to her skeleton and she only detected it because the way I remember it at least is because she, she said she was in pain and I told her to go to a chiropractor because it worked for my friend. Chiropractor did the normal scans any Western medical doctor would have done and found cancer all over her body, right? Where she had been going to this guy for years. And at the end of her life, uh, she felt uh, bitter and, and um, in some sense betrayed that she could have lived longer had she had this guy been, been better. And, and, um, and so I do blame... I do blame that for her premature death. Who knows how long she would have lived otherwise, but I definitely blame the uncritical, the, the uncritical hatred of, you know, Western science, Western scientific institutions and all the rest for, for that. So, and, and I also feel there's a really strong value in just insisting on the truth and, and all of that. So I think that's definitely part of it. Yeah, because it seems to me like, you know, we all sort of have our areas, whether it's race or gender or free speech, like sort of, you know, free thinking movement has free thinking kind of ecosystem has many sort of like subsets of interest. But ultimately, it's about hating bullshit, you know, no matter what your particular bugaboo is. Especially good sounding bullshit. Yeah. For years, I couldn't I could not bring myself to uh, to actually look at that doctor. I couldn't bring myself for years to look into his philosophy and of the guy that was medicating my mom for years. And then some, sometime a year or two ago, I just couldn't sleep one night for some reason. And I, I watched like a hundred of his Vimeo lectures to understand his philosophy. And it was very, it was very difficult. The thought that my mother had been duped by this guy and that that had cost her potentially years of her life. And, and this guy is a, he's a very kind of charismatic, 
cr- critic of Western medicine and I see how, especially someone who's had trouble with the medical system, which is like a lot of people because there are so many problems actually with uh, our medical system. Someone who had bad experiences, horrible doctors, surgical errors, all kinds of crazy stuff can go to that extreme, but it nevertheless is extremely dangerous. And um, I definitely think that's a, that's a part of my origin story. Did you ever reach out to him or like say, I mean, I would have. I have so much bile for this person. I like I don't think that I want to, uh, I don't know that I could engage with him without wanting to destroy him. That's hard. No, I was surrounded by like pseudoscience stuff, but it it wasn't, you know, I guess maybe it's like a South Asian thing or like a non-Western thing. But, you know, in, in, in Pakistan, at least, and I think also like in India, it's like there's a fusion of all kinds of different ideologies and people aren't thinking clearly enough to be like, this contradicts this, you know, so you maybe you go to, you know, homeo, like homeopathy um, and you, you go to that kind of doctor and they give you some sugar pills and you go to a Western doctor, maybe if you have the money and then you take, you know, you see what they have to say and take whatever they have to give you. I don't know if like my parents ever saw it as necessarily something that contradicted in their minds, but I remember always having all these like little sugar pills, like, you know, like those, I don't know if you really, I mean, yeah, yeah. Actual it was so, sugar pills. Well, yeah, they're, they're just sugar pills. That's all they are. That's all like that your parents gave oh, you or that you would get from a doctor when you, they took you to a doctor. Both. Like they knew doctors, um, who practice like homeopathy in Pakistan and also in the United States, they found like people who, who could do that. And I remember, you know, I was sick and they would give me these things and they tasted really good. And I actually loved that medicine. So I would like pretend yeah, to be like, it was oh, like I'm sick. I need Smarties. Some. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was just, it was like candy. And I remember one time I woke up in the middle of the night, my cousin was over, she was taller and I had her, I was like, let's go, let's go get some, like, let's go get some medicine. And we, we went to the cabinet. I like, she held me on her shoulders. We got like a big thing of medicine and like gorged on it. <laughs> And nothing You happened. didn't think it you were going to have an overdose? That no, this, I, was this like, I was like that, uh... four or five. Like, I was like a kid. Um, and she was like not much older than me. And so obviously we just kids. You're going into the medicine cabinet and nothing happened. And years later, I heard, you know, the, the, the phrase like the dose makes the poison. And I remember thinking, why wasn't that poisoned? Like, why did nothing happen to me? Like, oh, okay. Cause, cause there's no dose. There's no, it's not medicine. Nothing there is working at all on any level. So did your parents know that they were sugar pills? No, they, they were think marketed as something else. And they even called them doctors. So it's like doctor, whatever, you know, yeah. like who, you know, our local like doctor. So in addition to the Western doctors, so they have Western doctors, but Western doctors are expensive. Like those kinds of medical doctors are expensive, you know, both here and there. Uh, so this was like another alternative and you see what they have to say and you, you take and it can't hurt. That's what that's what they that's how they approached it. And it's amazing the power of placebo and nocebo and just the power of suggestibility in everyday life. It's just, it's incredible. Like uh, sometimes I think I, I have a, a bit of a complex about whether I get enough sleep. So like if I get, I only got like four hours of sleep last night. Um, and usually I feel fine right now, but usually when I, when that happens, I'm just in my head all day about oh, I'm not going to be at my best for this podcast, uh, you know, with Sarah and Megan. I only, why did I, why did I stay <laughs> yeah, up? How why dare did I, you? You only got I, four hours of sleep Exactly. For us? You know, why did I not plan better? So I got everything done, blah, blah, blah. But that very line of thinking is part of what makes me feel bad, right? Like if you could somehow do an experiment where I have no idea how much sleep I got last night, 
I'm not sure I would detect feeling bad at all. I would probably feel absolutely fine. I think pain has a lot. Pain is related to that as well. Just like your mindset in a lot of ways. Um, all these chronic illnesses that people have, like long, long maybe it's maybe it's real, maybe it's real. But there are so many like psychosomatic illnesses that become fads and people adopt them and think and they they begin to rule their lives and they begin to define themselves by this chronic illness that they have. The doctors can't pin down and, you know, they don't they don't know the real cause. They don't know what's 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 happening here. And it just happens to be that people with anxiety disorders, like people who are generally of the nervous temperament are the kinds of people who gravitate towards having over index for other ailments. Yeah. Yeah. Which is that's so interesting because to me, I mean, there is like so there is a biological component at, at some point, you know, like there's some kind of person, you know, through their, you know, genetic materials or whatever is predisposed to be highly suggestible or like, you know, nervous. That's, that's what they used to call them. Nervous, nervous disorders. And now they have all these chronic illnesses and it, it's pretty, it's amazing. Like their community. Did you guys see uh, Ross Douthit's who's a great, my favorite New York Times He's columnist. He's my favorite too. I think he's the best. He's a fantastic writer. Yeah. So did you see his, I think it was uh, both a column and a book about his having long Lyme. I didn't read it, but it's apparently really, really excellent. It was very compelling yeah. because I agree with everything you just said about like, you know, the suggestibility of, and I'm also skeptical of, you know, how many people who think they have long COVID really have long COVID as opposed to you feel shitty and tired for the normal reasons. And you saw that on the news and now that's the thing you blame. Um, that's a real phenomenon. But uh, Ross Douthat wrote about how he started, you know, in middle age having these, this cluster of shitty symptoms, which is just like all the shitty symptoms you can have. And uh, he would go to doctors and many doctors would like doubt that it was a real thing because I think it is somewhat controversial whether long Lyme disease is a real illness or a psychosomatic illness. And the difference between those two may be somehow conceptually not unimportant, right? Because if you can think your way into really feeling bad, then doesn't matter. And he, and what's interesting about it is, is that Ross is a very rational guy, I would say, other than his probably commitment to Christianity and God. Yeah. Other than he's extreme. I know that sounds funny. Um, other than, other than the fact that he murders a lot of guys, that's a very nice guy. He eats uh, rosemary focaccia, baby, (laughs) baby flatbreads. Yeah. But Um, no, he is, he's not the usual suspect for this kind of thing. That's exactly what I mean. So the fact that he was really on the side of, you know, take people's illnesses seriously because, and don't dismiss them as psychosomatic was a very interesting angle for me and kind of pushed, pushed my views around on it. And he had, he had even tried strange things like light therapy or sound therapy, kind of like woo stuff. And some of it worked or or one crucial thing actually reduced his pain. And at the end of the day, if you have pain for whatever reason and you do X and pain goes away, you're going to keep doing X no matter how scientifically grounded you are. I don't care if you read 10 peer review studies saying light therapy doesn't work. If it makes the pain in my lower back go away, I'm in there. Right. So it's an interesting conversation. I think the Lyme disease, I tend to be more, I believe that more than other things. I mean, I, I certainly, I know many people who've struggled with that and they're not 
necessarily people that it could would be, I mean, it could be a that. bit of both too, yeah. because there's something that happens like conceptually when you, like, let's say you have like a tingle here and like a you know problem here. And then you, you look it up and then you find out that there's a name, you know, like there's a, there's a condition and there's all these other symptoms. And then you think, huh, you know what? I am also feeling this and this and this. And it's, I think, you know, I don't want it this to, to I don't want it to come across like these people are stupid because not only do I think that I could fall for this like I know that I have fallen for this you know to just to see a list of things that kind of match in my brain which is like this pattern matching machine is sitting there I have this now I feel all the other symptoms too and it's you know and I think that there's something about the mind body connection there which not to sound woo that sounds woo mind body connection yeah but, we're gonna bleep that like, out clearly please. there's something clearly something's going on that we can suggest ourselves into feeling really, really terrible. And, and vice versa. You can, you, like, you can suggest yourself into feeling amazing. You can. And when you're around people that feel amazing and it's contagious, like emotions and states of being are contagious at some level. I once read like this article. Um, it was like going around like my Twitter circles with this guy who was like, actually, you don't need any kind of, you don't need a lot of sleep. Everyone's, it's all BS. And you only need, to, I, I lived on like four hours of sleep for like this amount of time. And he like logged it and he wrote about it and it was very compelling and he was a smart person. Therefore, that's true for everyone. And well, you know, I read that and I remember like for a few days afterwards, like even when on the days where I got four hours of sleep, I was like, you know what? I'm fine. And I felt fine. That's what amazing. if they came out and said, oh, you know what? The research is now showing that nobody needs more than four hours of sleep. Like this has all been, uh, this has been incorrect. And going forward, this is all you need. I bet people would get used to it. I think a surprising number of people might. Although that four hours of sleep thing, if, if Matthew Walker, that that sleep expert guy that wrote that big book a few years ago, if he's right, there's just a certain gene that governs that. And certain people just have the super sleep gene yeah. Yeah. where they feel as good on four as the rest of us feel on eight. And are those people like, you know, tech billionaires and CEOs? Those are no, they're I mean, they're, they're like, but they're productive. Or they're like, up in incredible. their mother's basements playing Call of Duty until five <laughs> well, hours. Yeah. So yeah. Um, my husband's like that. He's like a super, he can survive on like five hours. Good. He's good. I, I could, I could sleep for 10. If you let me, if nobody woke me up and I had nothing to do, I could sleep for 10. But this gets into like the social contagion issue, which touches on trans and gender dysphoria, but is also just in its own right, one of the most interesting phenomena. Well, we don't talk about that. You don't talk about that We don't at talk all. about trans yeah, no, or I've heard gender you, dysphoria. You don't do, yes, I know. I, know. No. I heard that's the one topic you avoid we on have your not, podcast. We're not, just not interested yeah. in it. So I don't want to drive you in there, but, um, but no, like there are, what's interesting to me is like, forget the topic of gender dysphoria for a moment and just think about social contagion in general. There are these fascinating cases where a whole, you know, school develops, say, like hiccups. Or Tourette's. Like, or Tourette's. That there was a case, there's been several cases. Yeah, that there's yeah. TikTok Tourette's where suddenly there's a spike in Tourette's. Doctors all over the country saying, what the hell is going on? Um, is it something that's in the water? Is it something? And the only thing that explains it is all the new cases of Tourette's have TikToks and follow influencers who have Tourette's. And I've seen some of these influencers. It's actually very interesting content for someone to let you into their Tourette's tick. But then it becomes this status thing of like, they're cool because they have this tick. And oh, like maybe I, maybe I, I sometimes stutter. Maybe that's like, and then it develops into a thing and people fixate on it. And there may even be a, a comp, a, an autism component too, where people more likely to fixate because they have 
Aspie or, or artistic tendencies can can go deeper down certain rabbit holes and ways of being uh, and are less flexible and maybe take things more literally. And and so you see that, you know, like hiccups outbreak at some school, I think it was Massachusetts or something. Is yeah, there a hiccup a, TikTok? There was a hiccups but is there a hiccup influencer community? I don't know if the, they've done community? a collab. No, I don't think hiccup, hiccups and TikTok have, have linked up. But there was a hiccups outbreak at a school, at one school. It was either Massachusetts or Delaware, I forget. And they literally, they were literally looking at, is it something in the water supply in the town? Is it something in the... And it was just a kind of spontaneous, emergent phenomenon. That, and it, for some reason, they tend to hit young women the worst, more than young men and more than adults in general. So when you take that background... And then you look at the, the the facts, which I know you've you know talked about on your podcast of the wild spike in the number of natal female identifying as as gender dysphoric as opposed to natal males, which have gone up a little, but it's not going. I see more and more natal natal males. Yeah, uh, yeah. In this, but I, I remember seeing like at least in I think it was the American Plastic Surgery Association. This is from Abigail Schreier's book. But I checked it and it seemed, it seemed legit, uh, w- which was that there was like a 400% spike in natal female. 4,000. 4,000. 4, I've heard for Well, I think there was data out of the UK, maybe Tavistock. Um, yeah, 4,000% increase in natal females um, going to gender clinics um, for some form of dysphoria. But I mean, you could, dysphoria is a very broad term. So that could mean any number of things, but yeah. Right. So there was a, there was a single year where it was like, there was like a fourfold difference in the increase for natal females as opposed to natal males, which which is interesting because if the theory is, oh, we're all just becoming less bigoted against trans people. So trans people are coming out of the, you know, coming out of the closet, essentially, that would seem to affect both genders equally. Yet there's this huge disparity, which definitely lends itself to a social contagion element for sure. Like even if there isn't, if that's not the whole explanation, um, there's definitely an element. And that's a good, like almost an an axiom that anytime you see a wild, like an explosion of young women participating in anything, especially if it's if it's like a medical thing or, you know, it somehow distinguishes themselves from them from from everyone else. It's maybe start thinking about it as as social in some in some form because it's women. But is there some is there some personality trait like women are higher in like what are those categories? Like there's like neuroticism and all these. What do they call like the big five traits yeah, or something? Big five so is traits. there one of those traits that are like make women more susceptible or are we more? I think is we're it just empathy? We're social. Like, yeah, we're social thinkers. It, it may be empathy because yeah. we're like absorbing, sort of emotionally yeah. Yeah. absorbent. It may be empathy, yeah, because yeah. if you are actually feeling what the people around you are feeling, then conditions can spread, right? Psychological conditions can literally spread. That's Sarah. Thank God, Sarah and I don't have any empathy. We wouldn't be here. I, do you feel like, a, I feel so like not female in this sense. In the, in the empathy sense? You're just oh, like, 100%. I would never be, like, I see something like that and it makes me less interested in having anything to do with it. I'm sympathetic to a lot of people. Like I'm, I'm a sympathetic person. I can, you know, like I have compassion for other people, but I don't, I don't absorb their, their feelings. Well, let me turn that question back on you. What are your heterodox origin stories? Like what do you attribute it to in each of your cases? Well, we know Sarah's cause she was, she was a religious fundamentalist. No, I wasn't. I was just fundamentalist. Was like, <laughs> what? Yeah, what? But yeah, she, she was um, a, I was a religious person. Yeah. Like religious. Yeah. At I was what religious. age? I started questioning religion when I was 15 and I left like soon after. 
Like it didn't take long at all. But I had been thinking like a thinking person, thinking deeply about, you know, values and but most importantly, like what's true in the world, you know, and like, how can we know it? And the arguments that worked really well for me and there was no going back where, you know, some of like the, the logical contradictions of Abrahamic beliefs specifically. And then I, you know, and then I left Islam. Well, I left religion. I stopped believing in God and then I stopped believing in Islam um, as a consequence. And, you know, because a lot, a lot of women, they talk a lot about women's issues when it comes to Islam, right? When it comes to ge- gender problems, hijab and all this stuff. But for me, like, I'm such a, I don't know, jihadist at heart, but it's like, for me, it's like, here's what I mean by that. But I, I mean that if, if the Quran is true, then the moral, you know, universe like that the Quran inhabits, like that's, that's true. We have to accept that even if we don't understand it, even if it seems like oppression, we don't know. God knows by definition. So we have to, we have to accept the morality as well, like that, that the Quran comes with. So for me, I had no problem, like kind of just accepting it. If I thought the objective claims were true. Once I started doubting those, everything else fell apart very quickly. Then it was an easy thing to just like sort of give up. Um, but that, I think I was always a skeptical person, like always. And I think in one way or another, I would have ended up here. I don't know if there was like a point at which I became the part, you know, like without which I wouldn't have been here. I think I would have been here regardless. Maybe I'm just a little bit more extreme. I think you and I definitely have in common that that cast of mind that would really want to know whether something is actually true and take that to its logical conclusion. And that might just be like personality, almost almost hardwired. But if there were any aspects of your experience, are there any aspects of your experience that, that you think explain the fact that you really cared about sharing your way of thinking with the world? Because many people with that cast of mind would say, okay, I'm going to go do finance or whatever. And now I've decided religion's not true, but you took it upon yourself to put yourself out there in a very, especially very heated time for the issue and a very heated issue and, and you know, throw your, rep- your reputation way. in a yeah. very vulnerable way. What do you think accounted, accounted for that? Um, I don't know if it was any, you know, specific experience, but I, you know, I grew up in Pakistan, like somewhat, like we were better off there. Like, you know, I went to a nice school, I had nice things. And, you know, I came to the United States and I, we had nothing all of a sudden because my parents came when they were older. They didn't speak very good English. So their skills were not transferable. Um, you know, of course, without understanding the language or the social atmosphere, you really have a tough time um, getting back to the same place that you were when, you know, where, where you started from. Um, and so I was catapulted into like, I don't want to, cause it wasn't poverty, but it was definitely lower income America and starting to see how people lived. Um, the first kind of, um, campaign, I guess, of injustice that, that, you know, I, I took on internally was class-based, you know, cause I remember seeing, um, my neighbors, I remember seeing how, um, the kind of invisible ways that they were getting tripped up and how unfair it seemed that my friends who had a lot of money um, were deaf and, and not necessarily more ability or or anything else or more talent, innate skill or even intelligence, um, but that they were definitely going to do better because they were set up in all these like important ways. So I think I became kind of a, a social justice warrior, but like, you know, like, but in terms of class. And I remember wanting to become a lawyer and work with like these like lower income people and immigrants and all this. And it was like really important to me to to be somebody who made a change in the world. Um, And my atheism only increased that feeling because then then it was like, oh, there's only ever this life. So if we don't have justice here, 
we're not going to have it anywhere else. There is no like heaven to to make it all better and to make your sufferings here meaningful. Um, so we have to try and and make things better here. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. So like there's no second act. So is that why you like didn't go to law school, for instance? You just like, I have one chance. I'm going to do this. I mean, you could still go to law school. I could still go to law school. If the podcasting thing, you know, It was just, um, I don't, I don't know if I have like so much of a plan in life as in, you know, in any given moment, a different conception, um, not an entirely different, but maybe a different conception of what's the lever that I can pull that will make the biggest, what's the one lever that I can pull that will make the biggest difference. And there was a point where that was law school. And then there was a point where it's, okay, no, I can start this nonprofit organization and I can make a big difference here. And now it's a podcast. Definitely. I mean, we're difference makers. That's why we're doing this. We're heroes. We want to help the poor. Are we heroes? I think so. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Martyrs. I consider myself a martyr from doing this. Did you see um, in Prince Prince Harry's memoir, there's there's a passage where he, he was doing something and he said, and then uh, someone used the word hero to describe me. No. And I would have none of it. No. <laughs> you like, read really? Prince Harry's memoir? No, no, no. no I just saw, I saw an excerpt. And I thought to myself, what, what a disingenuous. Really, if you really had none of it, I would you have wouldn't have put it in but your fucking memoir. But I need to tell memoir. you, it's like I give, I give anonymously. Yeah. I, I would of like you to know I'm an anonymous donor. People have said about you, you cherry picked this one and said, oh, but I would have none of it. But you have to put it in your book. Oh, my God. Anyway. What What's your origin story? You know, so I really think it comes down to this hyper awareness of fakery and affectation. And I sort of was hyper aware of virtue signaling before there was a term for it. So my family is very interesting, actually. So I come from a family of musicians and my fa- my father is a trombone player, actually. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. What, uh, jazz or classical? Yeah. Everything? Jazz. Yeah. Nice. There's not a lot of classical trombone, I guess. I mean, there's not. The symphony orchestra. Great symphony. Sure yes. When did the trombone actually come into existence? It was originally called the sack butt. Don't laugh. The sack butt. Yes. The sack butt, which is a German word. I said, don't laugh. It's a... V- <laughs> It's the history of my instrument, Sarah. I can't Sarah. believe I didn't take not... off. That should be the name of your podcast. Yeah, the sack butt the sack with butt Coleman podcast. Hughes. And it was a, it's a, I think, I want to say, I want to say the uh, 17th or 18th century. Oh, okay. Um, so it's an old instrument. I think it's older than the, than, than the trumpet. It's such a simple instrument. Yeah. It's much older than the saxophone. Um, and even a oh, little bit. Oh, the saxophone is yeah. pretty new. Yeah. Yeah. So. But you so I mean yeah trombone is in every symphony okay. most symphony because it's not like a pieces. baroque instrument though for instance it was I think uh, what era would the baroque well era the baroque be? would be I mean like Bach Handel I depth. mean there because there were brass instruments in that time but you don't see yeah. maybe the trombone was just sort of configured obviously it was must have been configured differently yeah I don't know if it was relevant in that, in that time right yeah um, so I was an oboist anyway so, I see yeah okay because uh, and there's baroque oboe which is its own slightly different version anyway but um beautiful no, my, what's oh, that well, beautiful instrument i think thanks what, it's not the bassoon when by the way well. i know when played, you, well. when played well yes yeah. one of my very early pieces uh, when i was that i published when i was in my 20s was this uh essay called music is my bag and it was about the kind of um culture of band people and like scholastic musicians and the way like in my day, there would always be the kid that had like the scarf, the piano key scarf, like the black and white yeah. piano key scarf. And you would like walk into the band room and the kid would always be playing Billy Joel on the piano, like the beginning of Angry Young Man. Like there were just, this was of in my, in my time. So 
but actually this does speak to your question because I, for a variety of reasons, was totally obsessed with the space between like what actually existed and what people were pretending existed and like what people actually were and what they were sort of trying to be. So not my dad so much. I mean, my dad was a very eccentric person, very contrarian, very critical, but just was totally unfiltered. Like we would be going to, there was this French restaurant that he loved to go to and in New York. And there was often a, a piano player, like a guy playing piano in the restaurant. And one time we went there and it was a different guy. It was a substitute piano player. And we were walking out of the restaurant and my father literally goes up to the guy and he's like, you know, you're just not a good, you're not a very good player. Like, where's the other, where's Ralph? Because like, I don't know what you're doing here. Like my father would routinely behave that way. In real life, okay. Larry David. So was, he, yeah. was he autistic or was Yes, was, I'm yes, sure okay. he was like a fairly high functioning autistic, but he was so insanely almost savant-like about music. He was an orchestrator and he was an arranger. And so he was incredibly good technician and could hear anything. Like we'd sit down and read a musical score and actually be able to hear it in his head. So so he had this like kind of weird, quirky, eccentric, but like very deep kind of aesthetic life. And my mother, on the other hand, so my, and my parents had met, they're from Southern Illinois, which is like really... That is sack butt USA. That is like butt USA. Okay. And they were very conscious. My mother especially was very conscious of striving and getting out of that kind of cultural sphere. And she sort of attached myself, attached, wow, that was a Freudian slip, attached herself, not myself, to uh, my father who was using like academic channels to try to ascend. So he had been... um, he actually ran the jazz band at the University of Texas uh, when I was a kid. And um, that's kind of a famously good band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, he was like made no friends and didn't get tenure because he couldn't play. He couldn't get along with everybody. He couldn't play with others. Uh, but my mother was just then we moved to New Jersey and she was just absolutely obsessed with coming across as if we were incredibly sophisticated, wealthier than we were. We were not at all. I mean, my father, he flunked out of academia and then with no job whatsoever, we like got a moving truck and drove to New Jersey so he could like somehow make it as a musician in New York. It was extremely ambiguous. Um, And my mother just was like really put on a lot of airs. And so as her children, our job was to sort of go along with it. And so I think that there was just I'm very aware of myself as a teenager of like pretending as if like acting like a child. Like I wasn't even a child. I was playing the role of a child. I wasn't a teenager, but I was performing. I sound like Judith Butler. I performed adolescence. So uh, a lot of it, I think that a lot of my uh, where I ended up landing was I, I'm just constantly observing people's behavior and thinking that they're phony, which I think is actually I'm not right about it all the time. Like most people probably are just being themselves. But by the time the kind of extreme social justice virtue signaling rolled around, I was so massively allergic to it that I couldn't help but speak out about it. But the fact is that, I mean, I've been I've been a professional writer for 30 years and I've been writing about this stuff and observing this stuff for decades. Like nothing has really changed. Um, But what's interesting is that like, when I started off as a writer, I was saying all the things that I say now, but it was praised back then and 
you were writing for mainstream magazines and editors loved you and that was the job. And now it's the opposite of it. Like now all those publications that embrace me for saying these things, I'm persona non grata. So, so you have like a, who's the main character of Catcher in the Rye? Oh, Holden okay. Caulfield. Everybody's a, a phony. Little, yeah. <laughs> you have a little Holden Caulfield in Yeah. You. I mean, although he, that kind of, uh, I feel like that that character, it's Salinger is um, is is making fun of that kind of person. Like there is a phoniness to to Holden's awareness of phoniness. So it's a blurry line, right? Like there's there's people who are deliberately putting on airs and they're they have to be one like manipulative enough, intelligent, socially intelligent enough to notice that there's a way proper way to behave that's going to elevate me to this next level and uh, willing to be kind of dishonest enough to sort of put it on. So there's that, that like pure phony, maybe a narcissist, you know, like those kinds of people like who are very manipulative, like socially. Well, that's like a sociopath at some point. Yeah. Right. right. Um, So there's, there's that. And then there's like all these shades of, of gray in between where people pick up, you know, as we were talking about, like where people pick up ideas from the air, you know, they absorb them through their skin and then begin to behave in ways that are not, you know, them, like quote unquote them, like who they really are um, without even recognizing that that's what's happening. I think that's what's so bizarre and creepy about like the, the present moment. Yeah. I became a writer because I wanted to say what I actually thought. It was an authentic, it, it was an expression of authenticity. That was the absolute essence of the job and the only reason that it interested me. And so it's just maddening and extraordinary that we've come to this point where it's like the opposite of the job to in a lot of people's minds. And, and that it speaks to like a moral, like correctness, like to be the kind of person who is who is good enough to see things for what they are and then say, no, here's how they here's how they should be in a, you know, right. in this perfect social justice world. Um, I find it. I don't know. Like, it's just it's frightening. Um, it's disheartening like, to me because I'm a very, like, I'm a sincere person because I'm autistic, not because I'm like, like, a, I thought I'm you so weren't good. autistic. Like, I'm so, you I'm said autistic-ish. you weren't. I'm autistic ish. You keep changing your. No, 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 you, no, 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 no. Because there's, it's a spectrum. <laughs> I know. But I said the other day on the podcast, do you think you're autistic? And you said, no, not in a way that a psychologist would be like, yeah, she's autistic. But there's autistic traits, I found. I read up a lot okay. about this. I think I have um, some autistic traits too. I'm not, this is, I'm not. I would no say so too. I mean, so I remember someone uh, DM'd me on Twitter and said, I think you're autistic. I'm, I'm very autistic. I think you're autistic. Are you autistic? Uh, take this test. Uh-huh. And I took the test. <laughs> An online test? <laughs> yeah. Which, like multiple whatever. choice? Yeah. I don't remember. It was some long test. And I came out to be roughly like as close as you could get without being classified that That's way. That's perfect. That's, That's a, a sweet spot, be, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Cause I, I have no trouble. I've, I also just, I have no trouble with the things autistic people t- typically have trouble with like reading faces. I've, I have no trouble understanding what someone's feeling and all of that. I've never found that to be difficult. I occasionally mostly. have trouble with that. I feel like I occasionally have trouble intuiting other people's mindsets you know, and, and sometimes I struggle with that and I, I have to have somebody explain to me like what's actually going on, but mostly I can get, but like, what would be an example what could, <sighs> that someone has to explain to you what's going on? No, no. I mean, I mean, in, 
in specific scenarios, like let's say a big drama is going on among friends, you know, and people are fighting and I don't understand what's going on. Why are they fighting? Why are they behaving this way? Um, and then my husband will like kindly explain to me like what's going on. <laughs> man explain to you. Yeah, because it's not always 100% intuitive. Right. Um, but, you know, I really related to what um, I heard Robin Hansen. Have you, do you know of who he is? Yeah, absolutely. He's like the elephant yeah. in the brain guy. He wrote this book. Oh, the great, great book. Yeah, um, great book. That you would like as a like hatred it. of phoniness. It's basically a deep exploration of phoniness in every aspect of Yeah, it's like human phoniness. Like, in, yeah, it's a very... But um, rigorous. Yeah. So it... it um, he is somebody who's like kind of on the spectrum. I don't know if he identifies that way, but he definitely is definitely. I um, would not um, surprise. And he, he was, I remember hearing him talking somewhere and he was saying that, you know, as somebody who thinks a little differently, he would go into this like social world and social situations and not really understand why people were behaving the way they were behaving. Like clearly there's another element, like there's another, there's something else. There's invisible strings that are, you know, that he cannot perceive at all because of his like difference, like the, you know, neuro atypicality. And that kind of made him a really interesting, like, social like theorist and like so somebody who would go into this social psychology because it's invisible to you. You have to find a reason and an explanation. And so his like very explicit reasons are very different than the reasons we give ourselves when we do certain things, no, you know, that's our right. motivations. I mean, if you're like very not autistic and very effortlessly tapped into social norms, you have no reason to create an explicit model of yeah. what social norms are. Whereas if you're very autistic, like maybe, maybe I don't want to say that Robin Hansen is for sure, but um, s someone like him, then you, you you will become extremely curious and want to discover the nature of social norms. Right, like, that's all you do. Like physicists yeah. want to discover the, the laws of the universe. And if you're very smart, you can actually come up with a, a, an outsider's perspective on the social world in a way that is extremely interesting. Um, so I, I, I don't think that I've ever really suffered like that problem, but I think whatever aspect of autism like f can get you to really fixate on logical consistency and not taking certain uh, shibboleths for granted. I think I have some and that's why maybe some autistic people relate to me, but, but I don't, I've never right. had like well, the social. Well, and are in this space. Yeah, also. yeah, totally. But what you just described, this very principle, it flies in the face of the standpoint epistemology, right? So like, I think you're absolutely right that you as an out, if you are an outsider looking at a phenomenon, you are able to diagnose various aspects of it. You can see it more clearly. And yet we have this whole school of thought that says you're not allowed to speak to anything unless you are part of the group that you are speaking about. So ask, you know, what, ask trans people about trans and stop right there. I mean, is that not sort of like we should only ask cancer patients about how to die, about how to treat cancer? I'm not comparing trans to cancer. That's I'm not. But like, it just seems it's we're in this bizarre moment where there's an there's like a sort of a, there's an obsession with being an outsider. And yet you're not allowed to comment about anything if you are an outsider. No, no, it's fa it's fascinating. I think one analogy a, fr a friend made to me that always stuck with me was um, that people who grew up during the Great Depression and really lived that poverty and unemployment and crisis, often later in life, they would just keep their money in mattresses at, to their own detriment, oh, yeah. losing money to inflation yeah. and et cetera. My grandparents' right? generation, absolutely. So it's like their lived experience of being, living that actually gave them a distorted view 
of what they should be doing later in life, right? Because of, and, and that, that goes to your point of, yes, the lived experience of being in a group, it can give you way more like tangible knowledge of like what, what it is to be in that group. But if you are unable to kind of apply an external lens, you may also be missing a lot. Yeah, a limiting belief. Yeah. So you get to, to really learn about stuff like you want to incorporate the external smart view and the internal lived view. Yeah. I, I feel think. like we should bring back like old school, like anthropology, you know, but, <laughs> like you know, going to a there place, is something but like for, for like, like hide modern in the bushes America and take notes in a notebook, yeah. Yeah. like going to Williamsbury, like doing ethnographic interviews of the hipsters. The hipsters believe that if you, <laughs> Oh, I thought you meant colonial Williamsburg, but yes, no, no, they no. should, <laughs> they should rename Williamsburg, Brooklyn, colonial Williamsburg. Yeah. Because there, I mean, there, so there is like two Steel man, I guess the the opposition. There is something about being in a particular environment that exposes you to information that otherwise would be less visible. You know, so it's not not no, invisible, but obviously less visible. So I get that. You know, I totally get that. And I have I run into that a lot when I talk about class issues because there's now I'm in this social environment where like I don't know anybody who you know, qualifies as like a lower income American, you know, or, and they're like extremely highly educated people, like at the tippy top of American society. And sometimes when we talk about specific like economic issues um, or class-based issues, there are whole like realms that are invisible to them that they don't see because they're not, they're not familiar with these people. They don't see that their day-to-day lives and, you know, the, the kinds of, the kinds of things that they deal with. Um, And it comes across and it shows, you know, like even when, when we were having the conversation, what, a couple weeks weeks ago about why, you know, like poor people having kids and like rich people not having kids. And we had that conversation. I had, I, that led me to having another conversation with somebody else about, about the same thing. And she was just like, well, I don't, you know, poor people, like, you know, how can they afford more kids? Like there's all this like time that has to go into it. And I was like, but poor people have tons of time. And she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, you can't, when you're actually, actually poor, you have Nothing you can do on a Saturday besides like the free stuff, like go to the park, like you're a family, you know, you go to the park, you go to a free museum, you go to the public pool that's free. Um, You know, you go to the library. That's it. You know, me, my friends, we go to vineyards, we go to whatever new restaurant and try it out. Like there's a lot of there are options on a Saturday that somebody who is like low income, like really legitimately doesn't have. You wouldn't know that until you were really like, like as an anthropologist, like becoming one of them, becoming a native, you know, living their life truly. But having said all that, I think it is important to have that anthropologist that has like that distance, emotional distance, especially that distance from like the symbolic meanings that a culture develops over time and accepts. And you, you don't know those symbolic meanings. You don't, those cultural meanings, you haven't adopted them. You can create new ones. Yeah, absolutely. That's why, I I mean, I remember one of the early blog posts that I wrote sort of before I really started writing for Quillette years ago was explaining affirmative action to a Martian because I just thought it was, it, it would, it's, it's an interesting and useful exercise to explain something to a fictional being that has zero social context and takes nothing for granted except for logic. And, um, it's also hilarious. It's like a, it's just like a very funny premise, uh, to do in, in, in any situation. And, and maybe at some level the, like the sweet spot is to be someone that is from within a culture, but has just enough of, uh, the autistic mode of thinking that they can, adopt the external view. Cause then you sort of get a bit of the benefit of both worlds. You get like, I know, I know enough about this culture from having lived in it for 20 years, but I can also step back and observe it as if from afar, at least that's 
that may account for like you with Islam and me with American political blackness in some way may account for our, our success as observers and, and critics. Do you ever think about just how much of people's worldviews are shaped just by their own particular experience? I feel like the majority of kind of arguments I get into with people, it's because they're objecting to something that somebody said because it doesn't align with their very personal experience. And I'm totally guilty of this too, but it's like, it's impossible to get around. Like we've talked about the having kids thing. Like we've talked about like, you know, should you, is it, are people not having big families because of X, Y, or Z? And then the amount of people who write to me and I'm sure to you and say, well, that's not true because I have this or my, this, the anecdotal evidence is so overwhelming to many people, but I think I'm guilty of it too. Like I make all sorts of sweeping generalizations about people's social lives or you know, how they want to live. It helps to be able to, like, I think the the way that you can crawl out of that, the one, or not entirely, but maybe, maybe there's a path out is to look at the numbers of the things, you know, look at how people actually behave, which is like, think like an economist. Like look at almost, the data, you know, yeah. like think like an economist. And what does that tell you? Like, how do people actually behave? That kind of like behavioralist, you know, you know, um, economic analysis is very, very fascinating to me. And it's also bizarre because, you know, it makes you feel uncomfortable almost because it makes you think like, I don't know my own mind. You know, I have my own reasons for why I do things. And turns out like someone else can predict that I will behave the opposite as to what I, I think that I will behave. This is Robin Hanson's book. I mean, that, that, that book, uh, The Elephant in the Brain, I can't recommend enough because um, in some sense, it is a deeply cynical analysis of human behavior, but it's also accurate in some way because the basic insight of that book is that we are very good at lying to ourselves. And the reason we are this way is because it's evolutionary evolutionarily advantageous for animals like ourselves to believe our own bullshit in certain ways. So obviously what really got our ancestors' genes into the next situation was being high social status, marrying a mate with great genes and and also social standing and and all the right and, and all the rest. And almost by definition, our psychology is oriented towards doing this for ourselves. But that's a very selfish motive. So our prefrontal cortex basically acts like a press secretary for the actual operation of our brain, which is like the rest of the White House and the decisions that get made for self-interested, you know, reasons. And then the press secretary, which is your prefrontal cortex, tells your mouth what to say about why you're doing this, right? Everything has a selfless motive. Everything is because I'm, I'm just I'm just such a great guy and I want to do good in the world. Meanwhile, you can tease out certain differences. Well, if that were true, you'd behave this way. But, but you're actually behaving as if you were kind of a more self-interested actor. And um, that that's true to a degree that is uh, pretty upsetting, and um, like I said, could be seen as as cynical. But it's nevertheless the case. Like we're all kind of being press secretaries for ourselves. And again, it's best if you actually believe your own bullshit, because most of I think most people are not like great liars. So it's much better if you're able to convincingly give your story about why you're doing what you're doing. And even, um, do you know, do you guys know about these, these, these split brain experiments? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this is another, another way to see this. So 
they used to do this uh, um, procedure on on patients where they would split the corpus callosum, which is what connects the left brain and the right brain. They would do this, I think, to cure, not schizophrenia, seizures, seizures. There was was some kind of disorder that could be made better if you... Okay, this wasn't like an experiment on humans. There was a problem and it would be solved by by this surgery. That's right. As we know, I think, is it the uh, is it the left brain that governs speech or is the right brain right, right brain that governs speech? I think right is speech, right, right? right? and speech. left is more like creativity. More... And OK, so let's say let's just say for the sake of it doesn't matter, I think actually. I think it's reversed. But yeah. OK. Yeah, go I ahead. I think the left is like math. Yeah. The left is the like... right is the right is speech. Because I don't have any left brain at In all. In a very crude way of. Yeah, I think that's that's. OK, that's so let's yeah. just say the right governs speech and the left governs. Um, other things. And and also the left governs the right eye and the right governs the left eye. In most of us, this doesn't matter because the two halves of our brains are connected. They can share information. But if you've had that split, then information coming into your right eye actually only goes to your left brain and does not go to your right brain. So people have been able to do experiments where they show these patients with split brain uh, information in only only one side of their brain. And and so basically the, what, 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 would, what would happen in these experiments is they would show one half of the brain, the brain that the, the, the half of the brain that can't speak, they would show it some image or some piece of information or give it some direction like get up and go to the bathroom. Right. And then the person would get up and go to the bathroom and the experimenter would ask, why are you going to the bathroom? And the other side of the brain, which was not told to go to the bathroom would come up with some bullshit reason about why I just got up. Yeah. It's like amazing. That the person totally believes. Right. And, and this is only because you, you essentially have two people now in the brain and one of them is coming up with convincing explanations all the time of what the other one is doing. And meanwhile, the person feels like he is saying true things. Now, I mean, so far as I know, none of these people felt bewildered by their own behavior. They just felt like they felt pretty normal. And the the extent to which this is that we are able to do this all the time is like something else is deciding for you to do something and you're coming up with a reason, a post hoc explanation of your behavior afterwards um, that always paints you as being a coherent and kind and generous and relatable person. It's, it's a very... Um, you know, kind of dark and and skeptical and somewhat cynical view of of human beings, but that I think there's an element of truth to it, no doubt. So like a a more positive perspective of the same thing, instead of viewing it as necessarily selfish, which I think what what Robin Hanson does, which which it is, it is selfish, but it's also just like pro-social, right? Like, because in order to survive, we can't, it's not just, we're not just engaging with the universe, but uh, we're, you know, each other, we're, we're engaging with each other and each other, like our social environment, that's our best bet for survival, for like a whole host of things. So it's important to always be, you know, vibing with the group alongside seeing objective reality. Um, So, you know, I think there's so, so much of these, you know, uh, like class and, you know, like signaling and all this stuff. It's just pro-social behavior has gone wrong, you know, like gone, like become too deranged. Well, it's been taken out of a natural environment. It's been funneled into distorting technology, right? That's a lot of it. 
So what do you mean by that? Expand on that. What what do you mean? So like uh, pro-social behavior distorted by tech. Well, getting getting along to go along or or even recognizing like, so we, we monitor, say we monitor our social environment all the time and we're, this is mostly a good thing, you know, and we, we see what other, other people think. Um, We hear the different opinions and we like, take all those different opinions and figure out what, what we think about it, what we think about it or what the correct thing to think might be. And most of the time, other people are not stupid in a normal environment. They're like, there's a zebra there. There's a you know lion there. Like that's probably, that's a good thing to pay attention to. That's a good thing to know. Um, and it's good to pick up that information from your social environment and to constantly be monitoring. But now we have Facebook, which introduces a level of like social monitoring that is insane. It's not helpful. It's actually harmful because we are hearing the nitty gritty political opinions of everybody around us and we are conforming ourselves to those opinions. Yeah, and you're not even yeah. reacting to reality. You're yeah, reacting yeah. to a simulacrum of reality. It's right. And it's just like a hall of mirrors and it just more and more degrees removed from even worse, anything like you're, tangible. You're reacting to a slice of reality that's been algorithmically chosen to like engage to, to maximize your engagement, yeah. which could mean pissing you off the most or, or, or confirming what you deeply believe the most. So it's like a deeply biased sample of reality that you're being fed every day. So, yeah. So there's a crazy, there's something about technology in particular that's, that's deranging our like social instincts in a way that is departing from objective reality in a kind of a frightening way. I think the gender issue is a, a good example of all of that, but we won't touch it. But it's, you know, it's, it's a frightening thing. At some point, we're going to have to hit reality again, right? At some point, we're going to, engage, we're going to go too far and it's going to become a problem. Do you think? Or is it just going to get worse and worse? I mean, when it comes to like the, like the gender stuff, um, what you're starting to see in the UK, in other countries, where they're starting to push back, clinicians oh, are in, starting in to- Europe, they're, yeah. yeah. they're starting to be like, there are actually, this is not this, this like transition is not something, it's ex- an experimental process. We don't know uh, what we're dealing with on the other end, the medical issues involved, the psychological issues involved. So we don't know exactly how effective it is. So they're starting to come back into reality after, only after- uh, reality made itself, you know, it, it presented itself in a form that could not be argued with or like hushed away, you know, because you had uh, piles and piles of young people who were like, I know, but I wonder if even if on the clinical level, this kind of treatment ceases to be, or at least is not as common, there's still going to be a whole theoretical landscape and people are going to dig in even harder, right? It's like, okay, well, maybe I can't get puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones, but that means I'm going to, this is going to be even more constructed. Like I'm going to well, take this. What do you this, mean? It's well, be more like, if, okay. So if transition, if, if I can't transition because the clinic doesn't offer that anymore, I'm still going to identify as transgender, but I'm going to like dig in all the harder. At, On the social like, I identify, yes, I identify with this, my theoretical self-concept, I'm going to impose that upon the world even harder. So I feel like it could go either way. To the extent that institutions depart from, like, cannot be checked by reality, like those institutes, especially like humanities, like the the aspects of academia, whole fields in academia that are, that there's no check. At no point does it have to be, does it have to measure itself against. Right. The building is not going to fall down because the humanities department decides that something is real versus something else. Yeah. This is, I think, one of my favorite writers, Thomas Sowell. Listeners to my podcast will not be surprised. One of his uh, books is called Intellectuals and Society. And I think one of the undervalued 
insights from that book and and others have made it as well. I think Paul Johnson has made this insight too, is that um, intellectuals and commentators, people like us, don't really pay a personal price for false predictions or for false statements. No, we're not going to kill anybody. Yeah. Probably. Whereas like any average um, like food cart owner on the street in New York, um, a person of much lower status than any of us who in some sense is valued less by society pays an extreme price for being wrong about what people want to eat and for changes in the market and for changes in prices, pays an immediate and swift price for error. Whereas intellectuals... If their food is not fresh, if they make an error in judgment about what they can serve, they could kill somebody. That's right. Whereas the the incentives, uh, in some sense, I think incentives are more important than intelligence in terms of getting things right and getting things wrong. Like if you you told me I was going to get punched in the face by Conor McGregor every time I got a fact wrong about the world. I mean, I, I, I could be much dumber than I am and probably get things right even a higher percentage of the time just because of how deeply I would be emotionally tied to getting things right. But intellectuals, the, basically the, the, the incentive structure is, is connected to gaining status and that has only a very tenuous connection to saying what is true. I actually wrote about this on my Substack, um, like this almost exact same thing um, when it came to, but the, the, the topic I was focusing on was lab leak and like how suddenly it's become an okay thing to think. Um, but it, it sort of veered off into a discussion of the, the reliability of public intellectuals, like, or just like the, the idea of a public intellectual, you know, I mean, you, you are performing to some degree. It, it you can't just say things that are perfectly true. You are incentivized to say things that feel true, that, you know, fit in into the the framework of of uh, your audience and what they expect. Or maybe you you push the envelope a little bit, you, you're edgy, but you can't be too edgy. Like there's a there's a line that you can't go too far, um, you know, uh, south of, because if you do, then you're a quack. You're not respectable anymore. And suddenly your opinions don't matter. And I think that we saw that with COVID. And it was really frustrating to see people who were just discussing, hey, this is a possibility, like the lab leak is a possibility. And for them to be labeled as quacks. And I was one of those people. I remember I was trying to have these kinds of conversations with my friends. Oh, well, you were allowed to talk about lab leak for like three weeks after the pandemic started. Well, it's because it it was Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton talked about it as a a realistic possibility. If you look back to what he said, it was like totally, it was totally reasonable, you know, completely in line with like reality, actually. But when he said it, he was like a fascist and a racist well, and, and whatever Trump and all this. It. And it was Trump Trump, agreed. It was, yeah. And so it was it became untouchable because the the wrong people held that opinion. Um, and if you held it, you signaled that you were deranged. You know, you were quack. See, this, you had this deranges yourself. me because it's yeah, like the yeah. most uh, this is this is Occam's razor, yeah. is it not? Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, like, no, it's, it totally is. And I think it's being uh, it's now being as I, I, I heard the energy department which I'm not sure why they have an yeah, opinion on it. Yeah, but that's just the energy department, man. But, Who but cares? It's, well, it's an arm of the government. I know, I know, <laughs> I know but then... But this is the first real, like, validation right. at that level. I know. Whereas a year ago, I talked about this on my podcast. I think I gave it, like, a 70 or 80 chance percent uh, percent chance of being true, like, 
about a year ago and I would get some comments and, oh, it's a shame, Coleman. You've gone down the conspiracy. I've gone down like, the rabbit hole. I had on my podcast damn it. Yeah. two years ago and it was, uh, people were like, oh my God, you're, Coleman you're crazy. What are you? You're yeah. lurch to the right. But I, right. I find now. it amazing exactly. when people still say they think, oh, oh, a 60% probability. Like, how about 99.9%? I mean, but what do I know? They'll say, they'll, what they will say now, because you can always justify your stance like look back and say, well, back then it wasn't so clear. Back then it was crazy. Now uh, we know so much yeah. more. What has changed? Nothing's changed. I wonder about that. I mean, I, to be honest, I, I didn't give it any thought until I read that book Viral by uh, Matt Alina Ridley. Chan. She's, I had her Alina on my Chan, podcast. Which is, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been out for over a year. It's been out for a while now. And ever since then, I've given it a, given it a much higher than 50% chance uh, of being true. Um, and I think... You know, as time goes on, it, it probably just becomes more and more likely. But, you know, I, I'm not I shouldn't spout off because I don't really know too much. about. I don't vi- understand the people who but, say it doesn't matter. That's oh, the other no, thing. No, that's a lot. That, a lot of people say, well, why do you care? Why do you that, care? Absurd. A lot of people said that. I remember I that's got absurd. that from the because when I when I presented Marshall the evidence, they'd be like, it doesn't actually it doesn't matter. You know what matters? Like people are dying from COVID. That's absolutely like, and then Don't you want to understand to- where it came from so you understand what it is? That, that It's just mind-blowing. Yeah. Also to prevent this from happening in the future, right? Like if it came from wildlife to human uh, directly, that prescribes one whole path of reforms towards preventing the next pandemic, given that so many seem to come from, you know, bats in, in China and, and so forth. But if it came from a lab that was doing gain-of-function research, partly funded by, by us... That's the thing is, it's not a xenophobic make, point. If you want to hate on the um, on the U.S. government, this is your your baby. Go with it. it. Yeah. It's yeah. It's uh, none. Of, it doesn't require conspiracy thinking to see that Fauci actually vocally defended in print as either New York Times or Washington Post. I forget in the in the early 2010s, vocally defended in print gain of function research from other virologists who said, look, this is too dangerous. We should not be intentionally engineering viruses to, to, to be more. Fauci said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. This is crucial, vital research. I know it seems dangerous, but we have to fund well, it and do say, it anyway. You can't use that word. You can't say Fauci. You, you can't, can't say gain of function either. Gain I of said function. gain of function at a, at a dinner party recently, and they looked at me like, uh, like, oh, what are you on Fox News? That's the only place I've heard that term used. What's going to be next? Yeah. Going to... Deny the Holocaust. <laughs> or to conflate that the lab leak is the same thing as a deliberate lab leak. Exactly. Right. That's right. Why would they leak it? No. Who, who thinks they leak it? Why would you think they people? leaked it on their own country? That is truly conspiratorial. No, that's yeah. bananas. Yeah, that's, that's bananas. But it was it was a very like interesting sleight of hand to just say, oh, you're right. saying that why would they ever so, do it? Right. Like so what you're saying stupid. is, yeah. It also, it makes a serious point about the safety of labs. So when, when I was at... Um, when I was in college, I, I was dating a girl who worked in a BSL-3 lab. BSL-3 is it's like the, the security system for labs. And um, a lot of the research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology was, was like three at the highest, but like even a lot of it actually was done lower. The state of the BSL-3 lab at Columbia was such that the girl I was dating just like let me in there to like show to like show me around and it was like could have done anything it was like she showed me like the rat the lab the mice they worked with let me like she must I had really no, liked you gear yeah, on or nothing no yeah. gear on no nothing it was just like it was a total free-for-all that's a bsl3 columbia university like serious biomedical research happening there 
And like things spill out of these places. They're like workplaces, right? It's like human errors. It's it's only as secure as the boss of this particular place, um, you know, wants it to be. And it's only as secure as how sleep deprived the the worker is that day. And it's um it's amazing that these things weren't taken sufficiently into account by the the people who really argued for gain of function research. It really matters. To I think know. it was because, I mean, there was a lot of politics just like swirls around in a way and becomes like very feverish. That's one of the things that I think is new that is like technology driven. And then I feel like the narrative of what I'm supposed to think, the correct thing to think, moves very, very fast, faster than I think that the average person who is not terminally online like us can keep up. You know, they think they wouldn't know that now you can't say gain of function Well, you could you could have said it, you know, five months ago, but you can't say it now. Can't even utter it now. I think non-online people live in a kind of a different world and they're way, way far behind in terms of what the correct thing to think is. And that's just another way that we're seeing this weird bifurcation of this kind of elite's social space and like elite people who think in a very particular way or speaking to each other in these hyper like hyper connected like fast, you know, fast, fast ways. And then you have everybody else who has to go to a job who can't be on Twitter all day being like, what is literally what is going on? It's so easy in this space to have a political actor that can take advantage of the situation. In what way? You know, like to have a smart Trump, you know, imagine if Trump had somebody who had the low Trump has cunning, you know, he has, he intuitively understands something about like a common man, you know, like some, some like Oh, yeah. On, on some animal level, some primal level. But he's just disorganized. I mean, right. this, our saving grace was it was complete chaotic dysfunction right. and so disorganization. Like yeah. Kind of like animal cunning was met with like an actual like, competent person um, yeah. at the top. You could have a very scary individual that can win over a lot of people that Steve that, Bannon that. Yeah. Well, who can win over a lot of people. And and then the the you know, this this sort of chattering class wouldn't even know what to do. You know, we wouldn't even know how to speak to these people, how to come down to their level, how to understand their like the world that they're living in, you know, because we've just we're so, so separated. Yeah, no, I think the. Uh, the elite definitely failed the Trump test and the media failed the Trump test in, in my view, especially towards the beginning. Basically, uh, a big part of my entry into thinking about politics was that I was as blindsided as almost everyone I know when Trump won. Deeply blind. I was so blindsided, in fact, that me and my friend who who is half Mexican, we cooked a Mexican dinner on the night that night of the election to celebrate Trump's loss before it happened. Of course. That's how deluded and arrogant we were, right? Anyway, so Trump Trump wins. My model of reality is broken because I could see how a Romney could beat an Obama. I could see how a McCain even could could beat a, a Clinton. I could not see for the life of me how any critical mass of people could find Trump attractive. So I made a horrible prediction. And I think like, well, like any, any good rational person, I, I realize my model of reality must be very flawed to make a pre- prediction this bad. There must be things I'm missing. And the only explanation on offer from left media was there is a sudden unexplained rise in white supremacy and racism between 2012 when we elected Barack Hussein Obama for the second term. and 2016 well, it was when because we elected of Obama. Trump. It was a white lashing. It a was a white lashing that took several years to so, somehow didn't manifest in his second term. Did he didn't get trounced in his second term? It somehow 
waited like it was dormant. L- it, it, it dormant. lied in dor- dormancy for for eight years, and then suddenly came up out of nowhere. And um, and th- that was, and, and not only that, some of the same counties that went for Obama twice are going for Trump. Some of the same voters uh, that that Obama won over are now going for Trump. So the explanation is a sudden massive r- spike in white supremacy. That seemed to me to be very implausible. Or misogyny, massive misogyny against Hillary Clinton. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so that seemed to me to be to be not plausible. And and I became curious, like, what is it that I'm I'm missing? And I think the the biggest thing I was missing was the degree to which people hate elites and the degree to which elites um, don't make an effort to understand what is outside of their bubble, right? We all live in bubbles and that's okay. Um, I don't think it can actually be avoided. No one can live a statistically random life, you know, encountering a, a representative yeah, sample of, of the world. That yeah, no, nobody insane making could live yeah. that way. It's fine. But if you're in a position of power, whether that is in the mainstream media or in government, you you have a responsibility, I think, to take an interest in understanding the ways in which the the um, the walls of your bubble may be distorting the screen of your bubble may be distorting the outside world, uh, and and elites have perpetually make a um, make such little effort to do this, and I think that that as you say, it creates an opportunity for politicians that understand that divide very well and very intuitively to uh, to um, get support way out of proportion to actually how good they are. Or even even somebody like a politician that comes from the elite who understands that the elite are only speaking to each other and for each other. You know, the idea that we're, we're trying to impress each other as much as possible and get on top of like the social ladder um, or prestige ladder of our very elitist occupation, whatever. Um, and then if you have somebody from within the circle who understands this is what's going on here, um, you know, I understand how this works. So I also understand what buttons to push. Um, to get them going. I think George W. Bush was like that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, his his evangelical side, just he was he was an absolute elite. Right. I mean, could not be more elite than the Bush family. But he had a kind of populist flavor to him because he was like he was with the, the average person. Liked yeah. Him. And he was also talking about God a lot and Jesus. And at that time, that was a very populist kind of sensibility. And now you have politicians saying Latinx like that's a real thing. Yeah, that in particular, a lot of people make fun of it as like this extreme, like it's this extreme thing you're not picking, you know, when you point out the Latinx usage and how it's increased. Yes, it's not picking, but there are also interesting reasons to believe that, good reasons to believe that such an extreme case, such an extreme departure from reality illustrates something really important about what's going on. You know, like almost like where there's smoke or there's fire, but it's almost like there's fire, you know, like in this, in this tiny place, like something is going well, on. The, people are whispering in their ears. I mean, Joe Biden is just has people whispering in his ear. Oh, t- talk to Dylan Mulvaney. This is stunning and brave. Say Latinx. That's terrifying. It's terrifying that they, then, then there's just like, a, OK, yeah. Sure. And there's no check on it. There's no literally no adults in the room. Um, and that, that's what happens with the, these campaigns is, I mean, I remember with the Latinx issue because I, I'm half Puerto Rican and I have a lot of family that I spent a lot of time with as a kid in, in the Bronx. Um, that were working class. When I got to, and and I, I was I was almost fluent at Spanish when I was probably eleven or twelve years old, and I've kind of receded a bit since then. But when I um, got to Colombia and suddenly people were saying Latinx, I thought that was hilarious because I could just imagine how, like how funny that would be to 
my Puerto Rican extended family and how seriously kids seem to be taking it, like as if that's what the Hispanic community is asking to be called. And so that 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 just seemed very emblematic to me of the different, you know, everyone going to work for the Biden administration, for example, is is likely coming disproportionately from places like like Colombia, where such things are, are, are taken seriously and alleged to be the desires of the community in question. Right. It's always presented as if this is a bottom up demand for recognition and respect from the Latino community in America to be called this way. They are done with the gender binary of their beautiful language that goes back, that's meticulously and fully gendered and beautifully gendered uh, for hundreds or thousands of years that, you know, so, uh, and people fall for this stuff. I mean, in, in that, with that particular case, I wasn't going to fall for it because I had a, I had a real life connection to that community. So it's easier to not fall for the bullshit in that sense. But on the other hand, there's lots of other Hispanic kids at Columbia that had a real life connection and had as many aunts and uncles who would laugh at that word as I did, but nevertheless really took it seriously too. So in, in but do you think sp- they went back home and used that word with their like Latin family? Probably in that obnoxious way probably, because it's yeah, a way and they of probably striving. Got laughed at because by it's everyone. <laughs> but it's a, but it's also class striving. Yeah. Mm, that's it's right. A, it's a social exactly it's a social it signifier. It's a class signifier. So I'm sure th- I'm sure they went back to their parents and were insufferable. Yeah, yeah. yeah the way right. that you know you come back from your junior year abroad with a foreign accent. You know, it's it's an affect. Yeah, I think that it's the kinds of people who who like absorb these kinds of norms. I would never articulate it that way, but these are obviously the, the, the values and worldview and viewpoints and, um, uh, and signifiers of elite liberal of whites. It's white supremacy. It's a white elite, you know? And I think that's, that's one of the more interesting developments um, of our political era to see like educated liberal whites turn so like like so so into the democratic party and become this like very powerful base within the democratic party they're going to run the democratic party there's no i mean they are running the democratic party and what will that what will that do to what used to be an important you know layer of you know democratic politics right. which was like class and issues yeah, of class. unions and grassroots movements yeah exactly. yeah i mean the uh I, i've a couple friends that never tire of pointing out that when when biden won the re-election from trump he didn't get rid of any of the the tax breaks and tax cuts that that people were crying bloody murder about when trump implemented them um and chuck schumer didn't change the salt tax for new yorkers and like all, all, all this stuff None of it happened because it's actually not necessarily the Democratic Party is no longer the party of the working class. It's the party of the college educated. It's focusing college on student educated debt versus medical debt and minorities. You know, like it's there's if you if you're talking about debt relief, there's debt that's held by marginalized, quote unquote, people. And then there's debt that's held by people who tend to do better off. Um, and which do they choose? Which do they obsess over? Which do they talk about all the time and campaign about all the time? Because they know that that's their base and that's who that's who's worth pandering to. And the interesting thing is, is that it's actually a very powerful base. Like this is money, you know, like these, these are the people with money um, and it, it, they're going to blast the airwaves with, with this, you know, like with, with the, the ideology that they, that they share and the values that they share. Um, and it's going to be strange. Yeah. Strange indeed. Um, any other topics we should hit before 
No, we get out of here. Zero seconds left. Uh oh. Yeah, I think we're. I think we we covered a lot. I mean, we didn't talk about uh, gender. I I do want to. It's interesting because because you have like that um, like biracial background. I wanted to ask you who you like. Which side do you identify as biracial? Like, what's or is there like a prominent? Like there's some. Yeah. Interesting. I guess. So, so like as a kid, pre awareness of politics or culture, I would say I'm half black, half Puerto Rican in no particular order. I spent probably like as a young kid, I spent more time with the Puerto Rican half of my family. And as a teenager, I spend more time with the black half of my family. Overall is probably comparable. Um, and I just felt like I had that like split identity. Like it, it was a clear difference in my mind. Like everyone spoke Spanish on one side and everyone was American, black American on the other side. And it was like culturally very different, but I felt like I was in both. I did notice as I got older that more and more, and I think this is like as a result of social feedback, because like identity can be part, partly the what you put out there, but partly what you're getting back is that I got back that I was black, um, like just black. So I think I, I started subconsciously being more likely to just check the black box at, at certain points. And I may have also been getting feedback that to be black is really to be a huge, to have a huge advantage in some ways uh, when you're applying to colleges, for example. So, so I get, does that answer the question? I think it's, it's, it's not quite it's biracial. It's interesting. Because- I was thinking about like our vice president and how she's, she's black. She's like also Indian, South Asian. Um, and the latter half of her identity is just like invisible. It's never like, discussed. Yeah. yeah. And part of it might be that she kind of looks, she looks black-ish, more black than Indian, I would say. Yeah, I would agree with that. And her yeah. sister looks very Indian, which is interesting. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Do you know, she was in, um, she was in the same economics club as my father in college. Interesting. They both oh, went really? to Howard and there's a graduate picture of their club. It's like eight people. It's like a tiny club. My dad and Were Kamal. they friends? No, they weren't. That, that's interesting. Yeah, it is. Cool. Well, when she's president, um, maybe you'll have an in. Maybe. I don't think she's ever going to be no, president. No, oh my god! Not. It's the, like it's like the Hillary problem, oh, but it's worse the, the actually. Worse, yeah, worse. she's she's much worse than Hillary. I think in terms of her, her gaffes and her inability to string a coherent sentence yeah. sentence together. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. Hillary was seems well. Hillary smarter, has a gravitas like, a, yeah. at the end of the day that uh, Kamala just it's she's giggly. The la- I mean, it's nervous laughter. Yes, Hillary yes, could be giggly right. too, and that but that was and that was like the lowest points of her public appearances right. was when she tried to be like lighthearted fun, but yeah. she was right. pretending to be yeah. silly. That's yeah, right. right. It, it was, yeah. and it was clearly a pretense and yes. that's what rubbed people the wrong way. Kamala, she just seems like genuinely nervous and kind of unprepared and not suited to the task she just, a little and bit. And she was perfectly suited to her previous task. This is the thing is I don't understand why people want this job. I always thought this about Obama. Well, because like it puts you in line. Oh, the, you mean the vice presidency? Yeah, or? like the presidency was, I felt was like beneath him with Obama. Like he should have been on the Supreme Court. It's not, it's the, being the president or the vice president, it's not like a job for an intellectual. It's a job for somebody who is a performer and is a horse trader, like a politician, like Bill Clinton. And I feel like the elites, that's another thing is we want people who look like us and think like us to be in leadership positions. Like we loved Obama because it was like a walking NPR interview who also happened to be black. Here's the whole package. She Obama, really yeah, I mean, he's a once in a lifetime talent in the sense that he is exactly what elite Americans want to elect, but he also has genuinely no air of condescension towards right. 
non-elites and towards the working class. He's he's like a unicorn in being able to genuinely appeal to the elite and to the non-elite. Like if, if you saw that speech he gave a couple months ago where he talks about uh, social security and how you know people have the chapped hands to show that they've earned their social security gave me goosebumps but it also really appealed to people who have injuries cuz they've like worked they work jobs with their bodies their whole lives um and um and and he is somehow able to to walk that line and, and, and appeal to both in a way that almost no politician. But he was a great candidate. I'm not sure he was such a great politician. Obama's a perfect candidate. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you mean? Oh, you mean as opposed to a governor? Yeah. I don't think that he really I always felt like he wasn't actually interested in the job. Like he was put forth because he was such an irresistible candidate. But uh no, I, I always felt that uh, the job he was wasted on him. There was just I think a lot of people could see a little bit of themselves in Obama. You know, there was a sm- there was a part of the country that couldn't at all. But I think maybe that this was part of his like, uh, you know, his skill at creating a, you know, a, a kind of person that everyone can see something about, you know, about themselves in him. But for me, I liked I liked that he was like this third culture kid, even though he pretended not to be like he was a very like I'm I'm black. But he it, he uh, people who basically they grow. There's the idea that you'd grow up in multiple cultures, multiple you know, immigrant kids of like two cultures or you live in like another country or you move around a lot. But he, you know, grew up in like all kinds of different places um, and was exposed to a lot of different kinds of living and lifestyles and values. Um, and so those are like third culture people that don't have this, the cosmopolitan kind of culture, kind of, but they don't really have a whole set of anything. And I felt that intuitively about Obama, um, even though he did make a point to emphasize his blackness. Oh, when he started talking with the black cadence, it was cringe, don't you think? I don't know. I, I was 12 years old at the time. I didn't think it was cringe, but I, I don't I don't think my my phony detectors are quite as sensitive as yours. I just it's like, dude, you don't talk like this. I felt that he was emphasizing it. I don't know if it, if I felt it was phony because there is an extent to which you do speak differently. Like the code switching thing is real. Like I do speak differently with my mother than I do with you. You know, um, the kind of inflection I I, I you know, it just, she it, that's a common a thing. So maybe with her mother. Yeah, I want you to talk. Yeah. Please talk that way to me. No, really. You want to speak in the Urdu to you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, we probably have to stop. We've gone actually. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're getting a time. Okay. okay. Well, this was, oh, this yep. was fun. Yep. Yep. Cool. Okay. Cool. Well, yep. thank you. Awesome. For thank coming on my you. show and you're welcome for coming on yours. Yeah. This is, <laughs> whose show is it anyway? We'll let the audience decide. There we go. Well, we'll let them decide who won. Yeah. Yeah. This has been a debate. There we go. This whole time. All right. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.